Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2. We have, we have gone past Genesis 1 now for the moment. Uh, and next week we are going to look at Genesis chapter 3. And then the week after that we're going to kind of combine Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Today I want to begin uh, what will be kind of two different uh, teachings on marriage and family. Uh, and so that's going to be this morning. We're going to look at God's perspective of marriage. And the next week, we're going to look at the fall. And then the week after that, we're going to look at God's perspective of marriage and family and tie some, tie some loose ends together. Um, so we are super grateful, though, to be able to open God's word and what an incredible truth it is for us. Um, even as we were singing that last song, um, there's, a, there's a line that comes the end of my chord sheet here that's so appropriate for where we find ourselves today in verse three of what we just sang it says i will not boast in anything no gifts no powers no wisdom but i will boast in jesus christ his death and resurrection as we come this morning and we talk about marriage it's so easy to be like, oh man, it's not together, or man, it's going great. And, and we can very easily find ourselves in both a challenging part of like, of like challenging sin, but also challenging where we're like, oh, we've got this. And the answer that I've come to, at least for marriage, is that to say, I've got this, is an absolute lie. <laughs> Um, my wife and I have been married for 17 years, uh, be 18 later this year, and marriage is one of those things that is absolutely God-dependent. In fact, if you could summarize marriage from God's perspective, uh, simply I would say marriage from God's perspective means that marriage was meant by God to be lived in with great dependence upon the Lord and upon his truth. And we see that all the way back in the beginning. Um, several years ago, back I think it was in the early 60s, there was a famous song. Some of you who might like classic jazz may know this song by Frank Sinatra. It wasn't written by him, but it was performed by him. And the first line of, or the first phrase of this song says, and now the end is near. It's, it's a song that's being written about him coming to the end of his singing career. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life, he sings, that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. This is the way that a lot of us live our lives. And I want to just focus on that last phrase there. I did it my way. It's a Western thing. It, it's ruggedly independent to say I did it my way. It's also very human post-Genesis 3 to say this. While Frank Sinatra was the person who this song was actually written for and who has a uh, storied and very kind of crazy lifestyle, uh, if you go back and you read about him, the decision to go my way was not made first by Frank. It was made first back in the garden by Adam and Eve who said, 
God, I know you've provided everything we need, but we'll do it our way. As we look at marriage this morning, and as we look at how God looks at marriage, this is one of those central things that we have to understand. When we say we did it our way, our way always leads to chaos, and it always leads to hardship, and it always leads to struggle and conflict. And what God wants to invite you and what he wants to invite us in today, you and I in today, is radical God dependence in all areas of our life. Now, we're going to talk about marriage and God's perspective. I recognize that doesn't apply directly to everyone here. Some of you are young and marriage isn't even on your mind. Some of you um, have different backgrounds, e even coming uh, like single adults. Maybe, maybe you've experienced a divorce. God's grace is so sufficient to meet you wherever you are at today. But as we look at this teaching of marriage, this is so important for our lives, for how, we, for how we engage with one another, for how we engage with our society. And even the truths that will be applied to marriage can be very directly applied to your personal life today, regardless of where you find yourself. And so Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And we're going to read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to the end of the chapter. And so as you are able, I invite you to rise in body or in spirit for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 2. It's a great story. That's true, by the way. These are the records, verse 4, of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no, no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But water would come out of the ground and water the entire surface of the land. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God co caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Videlum and onyx are also there. The second name, or the name of the second river, is Gihon, which flows through the land of Cush, the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and he placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found as his complement. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word today. And even as we read about what life was like before sin entered the world, God, we want to see your purposes for marriage, your purposes for family uh, within your word. And so, Lord, um, as Alex prayed earlier, as the scriptures say, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to set upon your truth, for that is why we are here. And Lord, enable and equip us, empower us, your people, to go forth into our lives, into our relationships, into our families, into our marriages, and be witnesses for you, even by how we live our everyday lives, in addition to the words that we speak that declare your praise, your glory, and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, here we have marriage from God's perspective. Uh, you'll notice that this, uh, we won't touch on everything that is in this chapter today. Um, I, I watched a whole like 40 minute video by an archeologist this week, just figuring out where was the Garden of Eden? And the main answer is we don't exactly know. So we won't go deep into that today, though I do have some opinions based upon the scholarship. But what we're gonna focus on from the text this morning is how does God design marriage? But to do that, I wanna point out a couple of things first. The first thing I wanna point out is if you've been with us the last several weeks reading Genesis 1, you'll notice that it says, and God said, and God said, and God said. And one of the things I told you is that the word there for God is Elohim, Elohim. It's actually a plural word, which is interesting given the understanding, uh, Christian understanding of the, tr the triune God. Um, El is God, Kim is plural, so, so gods. And it's not talking about like the gods of this world. It's talking about a very specific creator God. What's interesting here is that we're introduced to a second name for God. And it takes the word Elohim, which means it refers to the creator God. And there's another name for God that's attached to it. And it's the word um, um, Yahweh. Um, you could typically see it in your Bibles as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. Whenever you see Lord in all caps, uh, I, I use the HCSB Bible, and one of the things I like is every time it does that, I know it's talking about this covenantal name of God. So in Genesis 1, it's Elohim several times. Genesis 2, we have 11 times um, this compound word for God. In other words, Yahweh Elohim. And it's giving us an understanding of, uh, of tying together that the God who is the creator is also the God who covenants with people in relationship. And so right here, Elohim, creator, Genesis 2, Yahweh, it's the word that describes covenant relationship. One, one of uh, my friends uh, who led our trip to Israel many, many years ago likes to describe this covenantal name of God this way, and, and I'll personalize it for myself. Um, there's a lot of names that I am called, 
and being like, yeah, we understand that, yeah. Um, but, but a lot of people call me pastor. They might call me Jeremy. This week I talked to my insurance agent, and that was not a very pleasant conversation. I'm not sure what he called me because I was so frustrated at the end. I was like, I'm not mad with you. I'm mad with the process, but I don't know. I don't, he's like, Mr. Cobb. I think it was very formal at that point. We're just trying to get stuff done. Sorry, that's a whole other story for not today. Um, my wife has a way that she calls my name. She says love a lot to me. I say that to her. Um, my kids, though, are the only three people in the entire world who can call me dad. Right? I can be called all sorts of things by all sorts of names, formal and informal. But there's three people on this earth who call me dad. When we think about this name, capital L, capital R, capital, capital L, O, R, and D, all caps, we have to think of it in relational terms. Whenever you see this word, I want you to think, this is God, the covenant creator, the one who steps down to make relationship with his people, because that's what's going on whenever this name is being used. God has has other names that describe his omnipotence. He has other names that describe his powerful might. He has other names that describe his incredible ability um, to create far beyond our wildest dreams. But when he covenants with people, it's the Lord God in the text. So it says here, and the Lord God planted a garden. Well, actually, it says the Lord God had not made it rain. This is verse 5 on the land. And verse 7 says the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. So his creation of man, his forming of man is different than everything else he has done because man is made in his image. Verse 8 says the Lord God planted a, a garden in the Eden in the east out of, out of, uh, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree. And you see this God who is the relator God, God who is the covenant-keeping God, is the one who is providing all of these things for man. In fact, in verses 7 to 9, we see several actions that the Lord God does. He forms. He breathes. He plants. He places. And that word there for place is a specific word. It means to set or to put. It can also mean to install. He, he installs the man into the garden, if you will. Uh, and, and then he causes the garden to grow. So when you think about the context in which the first marriage is placed in, this is what God has done to set the table for these people. He hasn't just left them, hey, here you go, figure it out. He has intentionally and purposefully formed, breathed, planted, placed, and he has caused to grow all these things so that he could provide for his people. This is a picture of the Euphrates River. So imagine you're in just, just the very um, lush, tropical, um, fertile place where God says, Adam, here's what I'm giving you to walk out all the purposes I have for you. Uh, it's interesting. I, I mentioned that the word in verse 8 is the word placed because one of the things that God is doing here is, is he's, he's placing or he's putting or he's setting down or he's installing the man that he had formed. But within the context of what God says in this whole thing, skipping over all these rivers and such, he, he, he gives um, different um, 
trees uh, for, their, for them to be able to eat from. And we go to verse 15. It says, the Lord God, covenantal name here, took the man and he placed him in the garden. So you might be like just reading English like me and saying, oh, he just placed him there, right? It's interesting. Verse 8, he, he sets him down. He puts them. He, he installs them. In verse 15, it's actually a different word. When you read the word placed in Genesis 2.15, and you may want to note this in your Bible, it means that he caused him to rest in the garden. Just think about that for a moment. Like, God cares so much about the story that he is, he's telling the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt after they've been enslaved. He wants them to know that from the beginning, the way that God intended them is as he placed Adam and Eve into the garden, and as he provided all these things for them, he placed them in such a way that he caused them to rest in his care. All right, before we talk about marriage, this is the original state for what God desired for humanity. He wanted us to, to, be, to be caused to be rested. He, he wanted to place us in, in a scenario in which we had purpose and we have meaning, we have dignity. We are image bearers who are made to image, we're made to work, holy work, but we're not intended to work from a perspective of toil and struggle, we're intended to work from a perspective of rest. Now, Genesis 3 absolutely messes this whole thing up, right? Um, and we'll talk about that more next week. But, but God's original design is for us to be at such a relationship with him that we go, I'm loved by God. I'm known by God. I'm cared for by God. God has given me everything I need. I can rest. And before we go any further, we can experience this rest today. Now, we still toil in the world, right? We still toil at our jobs. If you grow gardens, you still find thorns and that's just frustrating. And you still have to pull weeds, which is even perhaps more frustrating. Um, but, but as we engage in the things in this world, we can experience a taste of this rest. And the taste of this rest that we experience here on this earth is that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. There is no longer any enmity or any strife or any struggle relationally between us and God because when God looks at you and you are his, he says, my child, and you can actually call him Yahweh because you have a covenantal relationship with him through the Messiah, Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, Jesus is the one who says, come to me all you who are weary and you're heavy laden and I will give you rest amidst all the toil of life amidst the struggles that we find in our families and in our marriages you can experience rest today you can experience rest in christ even when all the world is shifting around you on christ the solid rock we stand all other ground is sinking sand so god places them he puts them in the garden and then he placed them, he caused them to rest in his care. 
I like the way that the Moody Bible Commentary summarizes this. They say it this way. This divine promise of rest refers not merely to physical rest as the cessation of warfare, but ultimately to the all-encompassing rest of faith. That is, the spiritual rest or salvation that comes from accepting by faith what God has provided. After creating man and placing him in the garden, verse 8, God immediately placed him in that state for which man was originally intended, the state of being in full relationship with God, the state of being at spiritual rest in and with him. Let me ask you a question. Are you experiencing that kind of rest today? Just be honest with yourself. Are you experiencing that kind of rest today? It's okay if you're not, because if you're not, it means that, that there's, there's, there's lies that we're believing about God, ourselves, or others. It means that, that there's things that are kind of getting in the way of experiencing this rest that God wants to give you today. We'll talk about that. Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him, he caused him to rest in the Garden of Eden. And notice how God gives humans purpose now. He says, in order to work it and to watch over it. That's the way that the HCSB translates it. Uh, there's a phenomenal commentary on this in the Moody Bible Commentary. I'm not going to go into the detail of it, but if you'd like to see it later, I'd be happy to show you. Um, and here's the way that they describe it. This word work is the word avad. Can you say the word avad? Avad. And then the word watch is the word shamar. Say shamar. There, just trying to keep you awake. There we go. Um, the word avad, work, means to work, to till, or to cultivate. It can also be translated to worship or to serve. The word watch here um, can mean to watch, to guard, or to keep. Interestingly, it can also be translated to obey or to keep charge. Here's the idea that the Moody Bible Commentary points out. They say convincingly, in my view, um, so that when God says this here, it's better for us to translate, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. It's better to translate this, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to worship and to serve, or to worship and to obey. When we think about that, and we think about, okay, God has given them everything they need. Now their work here is, is, is not just I'm going to till or to cultivate. It's going to be that I'm going to worship. I'm, I'm going to live in light of what God has said and what God has done. I'm going to live by faith that what God has said is true and is right and is good. And I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to obey. And so God says, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live. And they say, yes, we will follow. Th th this obedience is, is not a, now we must obey, like kind of rigid legalistic kind of thing. It, it's, it's all set in the context of this covenant relationship with God, this relationship of love. And so this is the original context for marriage. The original context for marriage is that they would be at rest, that they would live in awe and obedience to God, which leads to worship, and that they would live in prayerful, relational, and physical dependence on God in the garden. That's the original context of marriage. That, that's how God designed it. And the reason why that matters is because we want to know how God designed it so that we know, okay, as we look at life today— I mean, Genesis 3 happens. We know where it got off, but God, how will you help us get back to this original state 
obviously some things like a broken and sin-filled world will one day be cleansed and it will one day be made new. But God, how do we experience the fullness of dependence and prayerful and relational connection with you today? And how, how do we live in awe and obedience to you, this life of worship from a state of knowing man, we are loved by God and we are chosen by God and we are cared for by God and God has given us purpose and meaning in this life. So that's the task that we have before us in the moments ahead. This is the setting for marriage. So we enter into verse 18 and following. We have a lot of um, words here where God says, um, then the Lord God said, verse 18 said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And he says, I will make a helper as his complement. So uh, in Genesis 1, we get kind of the overarching creation story. In Genesis 2, we, we get a retelling of the creation story, zooming in on this creation of humankind. And what we notice is that the man is formed first and that God knows that it's not good for him to be alone because man is inherently, humankind's, human beings are inherently relational. And so Adam sees there's two of this and there's two of this and there's two of this and there's two of this and, and, and God already knows that it's not good for him to be alone. And God says, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam's going through, after God, after the text already says that God recognizes this, Adam's going through and he says, there's two of this, there's two of this, and he goes, go, there, there's not one who is a compliment to me. And, and God introduces to Adam, as Adam comes to this realization, yeah, there isn't one who is what is in Hebrew called the Ezer Kenido, the, the helper who is a compliment. What's amazing is that even before Adam recognizes his need, God is beginning to teach him to trust him, to, to trust God. And, and, and so he goes to God, and, and there's this conversation, I would presume, there. Like, God, what's going on? There's two of everything here, but there's not two of me. And I like the way that Dr. Randy Smith talks about this. He, he brings out a principle from the text here, and he says, God knows your, our needs before we do, but may bring you through a series of circumstances, sorry for the typo there, simply to help us see our needs. So Adam's counting, and he recognizes that there's two of everything, but there's no helper as his complement. In verse 218, this is word azer and konegdo. Now, when we think about help, sometimes that can be a, oh, they're just my helper. When, when God thinks about help, it's a very different thing. This word azer is actually a word that is often used to describe how God helps his people. So uh, in Genesis 49, I think it is, um, Jacob, at the end of his life, he says, God who has been my shepherd all my life long, the God who has been my helper, um, is the same word that's used here originally in Genesis chapter 2. The reason that that's important is, is, is sometimes helper can be like, yeah, you're just my little helper. No, that's not God's purpose for marriage. God is saying, I'm giving you a helper. And it's interesting because God puts the man to sleep. He forms the woman. He creates her. He breathes the breath of life into her. And he gives her in an act of marriage to Adam. And in doing so, he's bringing assistance, he's bringing help, he is bringing what Adam needs in order to image God on the earth as God himself intended. 
The word help here means help or assistance. The word connecto here is, can, mean to, uh, can, can mean to be in front of or to confront. It can mean to, to come against sometimes. Because one of the things that, that we see oftentimes in marriages is that two people actually can make each other stronger. Like, if my wife and I are having a conversation about something, sometimes she'll be like, but is that really true? What about if we, she, she, in doing that, she's kind of coming against, she's kind of pushing back and saying, have you thought about this? A lot of times, when we have this back and forth conversation, um, as we're working together, it actually leads to a better end result. But what I want you to see here is that when God describes this helper as his compliment, you could describe it this way. Um, Eve is equal to, and she is adequate for Adam in every sense. He says, this, she is bone of my bone. She is flesh of my flesh. There's an equality here. The rabbis actually talk about why is it the bone from the rib cage or from the side, I think is, is, is more properly the Hebrew. And some of the rabbis say, well, because if it were too high, the woman would have a, a too lofty opinion of herself. And if it were too low, there would be too lowly of opinion of herself. Take that with what you want. The idea here is that she is equal to and adequate for in every sense. She is distinct from Adam. She is given a different role than Adam but she's never made less of or demeaned. And if we look at our popular culture, we see a rise of feminism, a third wave feminism that is not particularly um, healthy or biblical in how it treats men. We also see in certain patriarchal systems a, a, a way of treating women that is not appropriate. Uh, a way of treating women as though they were things instead of that they were an image bearer of God. And what God is saying at the beginning here is he's putting two people, a man and a woman together, in God's perspective of marriage. He's saying, you guys are different. Now, that's plain, right? You guys are different on a whole sorts of biology, on a whole sorts of how like the mind and everything is made up. I mean, if you were to ask my wife and I the same question, you'd probably get two different perspectives just because she's going to look at it one way and I'm going to look at it another. Guys can tend to box things and put them aside. Uh, my understanding secondhand here is that women, everything is all just kind of mixed up, right? Th there's so many differences mentally and, and emotionally and physically between men and women, but God has intended for men and and women to both image him. And so, in doing so, we have to celebrate the distinctions that are between us with also always upholding that even though God gives different roles to men and to women, there is never a you are less than because of anything. Clear? And we have to be the people who image that to the world. We have to be the people who, who raise our sons to honor the women and the ladies within their sphere. Not in a way of patronizing or anything like that, but in a way of honor and respect. We have to be the people who, who raise young ladies to know that they're loved and they're cherished by their Father in heaven and that their value comes from Him and, and, and that they are capable and that they are fierce and that they are everything God designs for them to be. Um, my years ago, when my daughter was tiny, um, she she's taller now. It's kind of crazy um, how that works. Um, but but someone gave us a little plaque that says, "Though she be mighty, she is fierce." <laughs> I'm like that is that is that right? 
What is it? See, this is how this works out. I start something, and they say, no, that's not right. What is it? Though she be little, she be fierce. See? What is it? Maya, help me. I didn't hear her. So it's a little different than that. And if you want to get the real story, go talk with them afterwards. <laughs> See, this is why we need each other. Didn't even plan that. Okay, turning right. Okay, good. Um, but, but we have to understand that there are these distinctions that God has, has given. And when God creates marriage here, so, so verse 18, I'll make you a helper uh, suitable for, uh, for you, a helper as your complement. And, and then what we notice here in the verses that come, verse 22, after the Lord God causes a deep sleep and closes the flesh, it says, the Lord God made the rib that he had taken, this is verse 22, from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. This is a marriage expression. You can see that in Genesis 29. It, it, it comes back. This word brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman. In Hebrew, the word is isha there. For she will be taken from man, which is ish. All right? So there's kind of a play on words going on in, in Hebrew here. There's a marriage expression. There's a quality. There's equality between the two. Um, and there's distinctiveness between the two. A lot of times I'll, I'll be studying this, we'll be studying this uh, as we're going through pre-marriage with a couple. And one of the things I'll ask them is, now, a as you come through this narrative, what does the man do? Like before the woman comes on the scene, what does the man do? And we'll talk about that. And, and one of the things that the man does in the text is that he's naming. That's key because um, when you name something in the ancient Near Eastern context, you're taking responsibility for that. Right? So as, as God has given Adam the responsibility to, to worship and to serve or to watch over and to care for all these things, to steward the wor world he had made, um, Adam says, you know, hey, there's two elephants. Hey, there's two giraffes. Hey, there's two rhinoceroses. We're going to do African animals for right now. Hey, there's two hippos. Hey, there's two lions. Um, and, and by doing that, he's taking stewardship responsibility for them. Um, when it comes down here, God gives the woman to Adam, and, and, he, and Adam says, this one at last is bone of my bone. She will be called woman. So, so what, what is happening here is, is God's not only giving her to him in marriage. Adam is taking a responsibility for caring for his wife. And we get this couple of words or the last two verses here in the chapter it says this is why a man leaves his father and mother one of the actions of marriage and he bonds with his wife and they become one flesh there's three distinct actions of marriage there and when it says he bonds with his wife it's this idea of gluing two pieces of wood together when you glue them together they become super super strong god is saying god is saying here i'm taking two pieces and i'm putting them together such that oh man if you were to try to pull that apart number one it'd be really hard but number two if you were to pull it apart it would leave all sorts of shards and shrapnel and one of the things we talk about sometimes in pre-marriage counseling too is that when we experience um, divorce in our life or we experience divorce within our family it's like taking two boards and that have been glued together when you pull them apart they don't usually break my understanding is they don't usually break along the glue line they they, they break all around it and, and so one of the reasons why divorce is so hard even if sometimes 
it can be necessary is because it's hard to separate what God has put together and it not lead to a whole bunch of hard stuff. This is God's design for marriage, that man and woman would live in a restful state of dependence on him. And that as they know who they are in him, that they would um, walk out the purposes that God has given them. The husband to love and to care and to nourish, or to, 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 to provide for his wife. The, the, the wife to care and to love and to, to, to nourish and, and to provide for her husband. You can look at it this way. Um, it, it's kind of like what happens when a marriage occurs is that there's two houses that are put together. There's one side, and, and which is the husband. There's the other side that is the wife. In God's ideal state, the foundation of a marriage is upon resting in Christ and in the truthfulness and the authority of his word. It, it's to be like so grounded in God's provision that you go, oh man, I'm, I'm so saturated in who he is that everything then that comes from me is really an overflow is of his life through me which is why like i have written up here and the fruit of living in christ leads to love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control when, when the foundation is rightly set what comes from that foundation, and this is true obviously before the fall, but it's true for those of us who are in Christ today. When, when our foundation is rightly set upon God's love for us and the truth of his word, and we are resting in God's finished work relationally, oh man, what, what God produces through that abiding in the vine that John 15 talks about is this fruit of the spirit. And when that happens in both houses that come together, um, into one house, what, what that leads to is an incredible experience of what God intended from the beginning for marriage. Now, of course, Genesis 3 enters the story. And if you were to read into Genesis 3, as we will do next week, you'll find that there's blame shifting that happens. Like, <laughs> they, they, they sin. They, they, Adam and Eve choose to become gods unto themselves. They take of the fruit that God said, don't eat that. And in doing so, they bring upon themselves the, 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 the sin that enters into the world because now they have a spiritual relationship with God that is severed because of their, their, their sin. And so God comes to Adam and he says, where are you? And Adam says, we hid. And he's like, why did you hide? And, and Adam says, well, it's the, the woman you gave me. <laughs> and then he goes to Eve and he says, tell me what's going on. I'm, paraphrasing here, uh, and she says, well, it was the serpent, and the serpent, he just goes, and he says, cursed are you, right? He, he goes in, but what we see for marriage after Genesis 3 is that blame shifting enters the scene, lying, not taking responsibility, selfishness, and self-dependentness enters into our story. Uh, instead of this God-reliance, God-dependence that God created from the very beginning. And it all came through because of a lie. Now, a lie is any untrue thought or belief about God, self, or others. Back in Genesis 3, it was the, it was the lie. How does he say it here? The serpent comes and he says, Did God really say 
you can't eat from any tree in the garden. He begins to tempt them. Now, th th that's the beginning of the lie. And then there's a whole conversation that leads to Eve taking of the fruit, giving to her husband Adam. They both take of the fruit. But it enters into this story, this severed relationship with God. And now they think things about God that are untrue. They think things about themselves that are that are untrue and we experience this today they think about things about each other that 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 are untrue according to god's perspective and what happens is that while they are physically alive they become spiritually separated from god they become spiritually dead and they begin to live out of what the bible calls flesh i, I like this definition i got this from place I interned at during seminary. Um, flesh is the condition where you are living out of your resources to cope and deal with life, to solve your problems, to protect yourself from pain or rejection, and to meet your core needs for love, acceptance, value, identity, security, and adequacy. I just let that sink in for a moment. So they believed a lie, they acted on that lie, and now their source of life has been separated from God. And they're left to figure this whole marriage thing out in their flesh, right? As long as they're going to go their own way, as long as they're going to do it my way, as Frank Sinatra would say, they're going to be left with their resources to cope and to deal with life, to solve their problems, to protect themselves, and to meet their core needs. That's every one of us today. We, we all have flesh, according to this biblical definition. We can all walk according to the flesh. It's probably a better way to say it. Um, flesh is not something that goes away when we become in Christ, because f flesh is a daily struggle of, will I take God's word by faith, and will I trust him to meet my needs, or will I try to meet my needs somewhere else, or some way else? So the way that their houses look after sin enters into the world is you have a husband, you have a wife. Now, Adam and Eve, there's been lies and there's been self-effort or self-protection that have gone on. And there's two different ways that flesh can be um, described. I put, I put them in different corners just so that they maybe be a little bit more easily read. Uh, but you could easily, you know, they interchange. But one of them is positive flesh. One of them is negative flesh. We'll start with the negative flesh, which I put over here. Galatians 5 talks about this, verses 18 through 21. It lists things like, like the works of the flesh are... Um, they're negative, they're all negative. Immorality, promiscuity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarreling, envy, all these kinds of things. There's more, but for the sake of space, I didn't put them all up there. You can go look at them later. Those are ways um, that we try to justify ourselves or we try to meet our needs in our own strength. So when we see anger or when we see strife or when we see envy or when we see sexual immorality or whenever we see promiscuity, these are ways that we're trying to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. On the other hand, we can also try to meet these needs in a positive way. Positive not meaning good. We're going to call it positive flesh here. And uh, Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. There he goes through. He, he says, I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And, and before he does all this, he says, you know, here's my, here's my, uh, you know, um, my, 
my, all my credentials. You know, he says, I'm circumcised on the eighth, the, the eighth day. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisee. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. According to the law, I'm zealous. Uh, I'm blameless in the way, in manners related to God's teaching. So confidence and ability he has. He's very religious. He's a rule follower. He's blameless. The problem is, is that Paul says, all these things that I once thought was my gain, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. One of the things that we experience in our marriages post-Genesis 3 is we try to meet our needs in positive ways and in negative ways. And when we meet our needs or we try to meet our needs in both positive flesh or in negative flesh, apart from resting in God, God's original state for marriage, it, it always leads to frustration eventually. We might have everything absolutely perfect, but what maybe we've done in our home is we've become a control freak, right? We, we may have legitimate emotional needs, but by, um, by expressing anger towards our spouse or maybe towards one of our kids, we're like, now I feel justified in saying that. All we've done is we've expressed a negative aspect of trying to conform or trying to control someone else. See, the thing about flesh is it always profits nothing, is what Paul says in Romans, in the book of Romans. He says, flesh profits nothing. And, and flesh is one of those things that has to actively be denied because we are introduced to two different ways we can live. As followers of Jesus, we can live from the sufficiency of Christ in our life and in keeping with his word by faith. Or we can try to choose any positive or negative way to try to meet our needs. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 7. He tells a story about two houses. And he says, there, there was... The, the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. He says, on the contrary, uh, there was a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And in the ancient period, you would never build your house on the sand. I mean, here you're like, where's the sandy spot so there's good drainage? Back there, you're like, one of the ways that some people understand that sand is where you would find sand in the ancient period are these areas that are called wadi washouts, where all the water in a very dry area, very rocky area, would rush down upon like a, a hard rain. And it would come, and it's amazing because... In a matter of an hour, you can go from a completely dry, wadi riverbed, and it can be absolutely filled with teeming water. It doesn't happen very often, but when it happens, it happens suddenly. And so when, he, when Jesus says this, he's, he's telling this to a people who knew this imagery. He says, a foolish man is a, is a person man who builds his house on the sand. The, the waves came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell to the ground with a great crash. What God wants for our marriages and for our families today is for them to be built upon the rock. And the rock, Jesus is making the claim, is that he is the rock. He is the cornerstone. Sometimes I, I, 
I describe it this way when I'm meeting with couples, and I got this from someone, I don't remember who. Um, but, but we often can think of marriage as being a, a triangle. You've got three points in a triangle and three sides. If a husband and a wife on both of these sides, if they're moving towards God in their dependence independently, like, like as each individual, as they move towards God, what happens is they come together. The more we move away from God, the more we actually make a path for ourselves and we grow further apart from our spouse. What I always encourage people to do is you have a primary role as a husband or as a wife, and that is to absolutely fall in love with Jesus. Because it's from him and through him you will receive the love that you need to love your wife, husbands, as God, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the kind of love that husbands are called to in the scripture. That, 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 that we would be husbands who love our wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He said, here I am. I lay my life down for you. And, and God says to wives, he says, I, I want you to, to, to submit to your husbands out of reverence uh, for Christ. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, amongst other places. How does that happen? Only by going to Christ and saying, God, how do, I, how, how do I love and how do I yield to my husband today? How do I voluntarily yield myself? Which is what the word submit there means. It doesn't, it's not something that a husband can tell a wife to do. It has to be a voluntary yielding of oneself. And the only way that that really happens is when we go to God and we say, God, I, I, I don't know how to love her the way you love me. <laughs> Teach me that. And, and, and the wife goes to God and says, God, I don't, I don't know how to voluntarily yield myself to, to what you're doing in and through our family, through my husband as, as the leader of our home. <laughs> but God honors, he honors those steps of faith. And he brings great glory to his name. So, so as, as we conclude for our time today, I want to give some encouragement. If you're married, you've probably been in one house or another, even maybe in different points in the day. I, I want to encourage you. Know the truth of God. How he loves you, how he made you, how he redeemed you. Make living with and for Jesus. Make abiding in his word and in him who is our life. Make that the most important thing of your life. And trust me, God will honor that and a lot of things will be sorted out even before you see them. Um, if you're struggling today and maybe you're walking through some like some, some real challenges, just know, number one, that you're loved by God and that and that you're not alone. I, I think sometimes it's easy in the church to say, look at me, we have the perfect marriage. We, we never fight. Tr trust me, like even the best marriages, they work through things. But it's a commitment to being yielded to God that will bring the most fruit in your marriage. And, and maybe you need some help walking through some of the hard things in marriage right now. I encourage you, don't, don't walk it alone. Don't walk it alone. If there's any way we can pray for you, if there's any way we can, we can walk with you or we can connect you with people to help walk with you, 
We would love to be able to do that because all of us struggle with lies that we believe and we struggle with this flesh thing which could be described as, I'm going to do this my way. And uh, I can be a stubborn person sometimes. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, as a kid, I was definitely a stubborn person. And it was hard as a young person to give up, for example, my control that I would wield with anger. I've told you before, I was the, one of the best door slammers in our household, probably on the entire block. I could, I could slam a, my bedroom door with, with great fury uh, if I wanted to. God wants us to experience freedom from the thinking that we have to do this in our own strength. One of the lies that some of, that some of us believe is that maybe we believe we're not worth it. God has said to us, you are loved with an everlasting love. One of the lies that maybe some of us believe is that we are not capable. God has said to us, in Christ, you can do all things. God has reminded us that when we are weak, it is actually an opportunity to show his strength. So as we close today, I want to invite you to ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you any lies that you're believing about him, about yourself, and about others. In fact, let's just take a moment right now and pray. I invite you to just close your eyes. Maybe it allows you to focus a little bit right now. Ask the Holy Spirit right now, Lord, is there any, are there any lies that we're believing about ourselves, about you, about others? If the Holy Spirit brings something to your mind, that's something you need to come back to. It, maybe you know the truth of God that counters that lie. Uh, maybe you don't. You need to go open up the scriptures and say, God, reveal to me the, the truth of, of who you are, the truth of who I am, the truth of, of who my spouse or who my family member or who my friend is. And as God reveals that truth to you through his word, through his spirit, I invite you to exchange that, tr that, that lie that you're holding on to and to claim truth over that. Lord, I thank you that, I thank you that despite our feelings today, we can rest in knowing that we are loved can rest in knowing that we are adopted as your sons and daughters. We can rest in knowing that you've given us power, that you've given us um, grace to live today. God, we can rest in knowing that when you see us, you don't see the person we once were, that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation, you look at us and you see a redeemed person made in the image of God.
And God, we can rest in knowing that even as you look at the world around us that, that, that might scoff or might turn its head at you, you look at them as people for whom Jesus died. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the way you see and hearts to love the way that you love. And God, I pray that as we go into this week, as you reveal continually these ways in which we're operating in our own strength and in our own way, God, that you would help us to regularly set our minds on what is true. Help us to make the choice and the decision to believe by faith what you have said and to live by faith what you have taught. Because we know that life comes from you. We know that rest comes from you. We come this morning, God, and some of us here, we're weak and we're burdened, and we need the rest that only Christ can give. As we go into the things that are before us today, God, we thank you that you're with us. Your word has promised that you never leave, that you never forsake. Your word, God, has promised that we can boldly come before the throne of grace, Hebrews 4 says, to receive help in our time of need. No matter where we are, God, no matter what we are struggling with right now, we come to receive your grace, to receive your life for the things that you have called us to do. Help us to walk by faith today, we pray. For your glory, for your renown, for the furthering of your kingdom, here on this earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.